Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a blood and cancer specialist down in Louisiana, but probably known better as the Ankh Doc on social media. Today, I have Dr. Suresh Nair, who is basically a pioneer in sarcomas and melanomas and immunotherapies and really the targeted therapies that are going to really unlock cancer and its treatment in the future. He was the first chair of the NCI Early Phase IRB. Dr. Nair serves as the chief of the Lehigh Valley Topper Cancer Institute. We're going to talk about what really research and trials means, right? I remember even as early as a fellow, I didn't quite understand how important and magical trials are, not for the future people only, but really the people today, like if they're put on a trial. Uh, yes, you know, you know, I've been a, a medical oncologist for 32 years, and I can honestly say that clinical trials and research are the brightest spots uh, because they bring hope for patients. And in today's world, understanding uh, the, the genetic codes um, inside all of us and also driving the tumors and also what we can do to help improve our immune system to fight cancer. Uh, research has been life-saving, life-altering, and for those of us that are in the midst of doing these clinical trials, it's what keeps us uh, coming back every day, rejuvenated to tackle new new problems. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when you're getting on a trial, you're not getting on something like, ooh, we found this stuff, you know, in a rainforest, and we think if we sprinkle it, it may, you know. It's not that. It's like it's based on usually therapeutics today that are just so extensively studied, this target, this precise, like, we think on this keychain of a thousand keys, we think we found one that really kind of unlocks this and opens, you know, the entire world on attacking this cancer effectively. And the problem is, and it's not a problem, it's a, it's a you know, safety spot, but basically you need the data, sometimes it takes years, even if it's super effective, to have the solid sound data to say, okay, this recommended across the board. But if you're in a situation where you have a cancer today, and especially if you've used lines previously or there's not some good treatments, that trial will enable you to have it years sooner for something that could be extremely effective. Exactly. And I, and I think uh, um, I, I would say even coming out of COVID now, research is really rejuvenated. And I feel uh, just like the world's opening up, I think cancer research is opening up. For sure. And now... On that note, let's talk about how melanoma was once, and I mean, it still is, but but was once an entirely differently scary thing, right? I mean, if people can't appreciate it, basically, when you had melanoma, we did things as far as literally shocking the body with like cytokines and interleukins, basically just full out like mirroring sepsis, like just like calamity in the body, hoping that that excited the body enough to attack the tumors. That's how desperate we were. We didn't have a lot of good treatments. And all yeah, of a and sudden, that changed mm -hmm. incredibly. And I think, and yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but back in the day, like even like, I think 50, 80 years ago, you would actually scratch, they would scratch tumors with like a little rake and stuff. Uh, skin lesions because we could appreciate at least just noticing that the immune system when you aggravate something and get kind of inflammation there that it would do something to reduce the size of lesions right as a very simple science yes yes uh, from 30 years ago to 10 years ago nothing really changed over that 20-year time period it, if you had uh, spread of uh, melanoma which close to half of the um, stage uh, 3 patients would develop spread of melanoma it was as bad as pancreatic cancer in terms of prognosis. 90% of patients were dying within a year. Back at that time, all we had was chemotherapy, 
or high-dose interleukin-2, which is a, a very strong treatment. And as an oncologist that was taking care of on a, on a year, every year, about 20 patients with stage four melanoma. And for the first 22 years of my practice, one of those 22 may be alive up to five years. Oh. And it was, it was so, so discouraging because in, uh, for here, it was 2013 was the year and Lehigh Valley uh, was um, lucky to be one of the 10 sites picked for the phase two testing of uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab, which is also called Updevo and Yervoy. And it was the first time that stage four melanoma patients could get access to these uh, amazing medicines. And two out of the four patients that I treated at that time, 2013, with a six month prognosis, they're both alive. They're, by the end of this year, they'll be out 10 years. And that, you know, I get chills thinking about the, what I consider the early days, uh, which is 2013. And that's very important because that again was not with chemotherapy. We're trying to the best we can transition away from chemo, which is more of a shotgun approach. It really is just poisoning the body enough it can tolerate, but giving enough poison of sorts to affect the things that are you know replicating the fastest and will cause DNA damage and things like that. We want to transition away from that to what's called you know targeted therapy, molecular therapy, immunotherapy, precision therapy. All of those things mean instead of doing the shotgun approach, how can we find how can we tease apart what the mechanisms are to a either escape the immunity because our immunity is always like taking care of erroneous cells or you know aberrant meaning like they have something sketchy about them and it doesn't look like they're gonna fall in line. Like you gotta kind of like discharge them from the army because you don't think they're gonna follow commands well. But they escape that discharge and basically just start their own thing. So that, you know, you have that part of it. And then you also have the part that just, you know, what is it, what is the feature? Because in a lot of respects, they're, they are your normal cells. They have a lot of the same tools. But what is the one thing on the tool bed that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. that looks like, you know, we're dealing with wood and that's a platinum hammer. Like, that's not fair. And then you gotta, you gotta attack it, right? And so that's one, one, what's really encouraging about, you know, where we're headed with cancer. Two, what exists today that's not yet standard of care, which amazing humans like you are making happen. So, you know, that's why I like, you know, Excure started all this for me as a community oncologist. It's very hard to treat everything and keep up. So they use AI technology to say, hey, these are all of the things that have been updated like in real time today on what the possible targets are that, you know, qualify for standard of care and where all the targets are that are being investigated. And the cool thing is, and when patients get on it, then we can aggregate more data and we can just kind of almost speed up the approvals for very effective therapies. So you had said about one in 22 or one in 24 people would have a five-year survival pre-immunotherapy stuff. What does that five-year survival look like with immunotherapy stuff? So the, the, the big breakthrough was um, a clinical trial in 2014 where they started combining the two, uh, two medicines. They took, took away the two breaks on the immune system. So uh, one break is called the PD-1 break and the other is called the CTLA-4 break. And with the, when these two medicines were given together, stage four melanoma started melting away like a lymphoma would. So from that study, 60% of the patients with stage four melanoma are alive uh, at six years. And over a third of the patients are completely disease-free, meaning they actually have a chance for a cure. We're not calling it a cure yet. We need um, 10 years and longer follow-up, but um, my first couple of patients are about to reach year 10. And at Lehigh Valley, we have 50 patients with stage four melanoma 
that are cancer-free through these immunotherapy drugs. Uh, before someone like me in my career, I would have three or four patients. Um, so, so we're talking um, like three to four percent to sixty percent, forty to sixty percent, sixty percent survival. And all we did and was least, enable the body to do what it do. In effect, like we, it's a it's an enabler. These therapies are enabling yeah. your cells to kill the tumor. They're not actually directly and, killing the tumor. They just like a cloak in Harry Potter, that's the invisible cloak that they got away from the body for a while. We're just taking that cloak off so the body's like, whoa, and can go attack it, right? What's really exciting, Sanjay, is um, about a third of the patients that got this treatment, after about a year to two years of treatment, they've just been on social visits and scans. Um, and the patients after year three, they just are not having recurrences. So we really see what we call a tail in the curve where the survival just isn't dropping off the way it would with chemotherapy with most of our cancers. So here's my first hot seat question. When, if ever, is it okay to maybe stop the immunotherapy in a stage four setting? In our clinical trials, we've gone up to two years. Um, and so some of the trials do allow um, in conditions other than melanoma, where we're not sure how durable the remissions will be to keep going five years and longer. But in melanoma especially, we feel very, if patients are in a durable, complete response, we feel very comfortable um, stopping at one to two years. And what percentage of those yeah. people end up, like now that they've achieved that you know, durable remission, what percentage with the cessation of immunotherapy will you see relapse in a year or two? Yeah, so, so I'm talking specific to melanoma right. because our results are much better in melanoma than most other cancers. So in melanoma, I would say two thirds of the patients that are in a full remission remain that way at year three and pretty much everybody that remains that way at year three has been getting out to year eight, nine uh, in our study follow. I looked at last year's list and this year's list and there's been no drop off of the patients year three, three plus. And those that do recur, what percentage go back to a remission with reintroduction of immunotherapy? They're close to half uh, because that's where we use the new clinical trials and that's where the precision oncology that you mentioned comes in. We just had a paper come out of melanoma research last week where we, uh, in one of the resistant cases, it was due to a variant BRAF, not the, not the standard BRAF, what we call V600E, right. but a, a different one. And that one tends to be even more resistant and this is where um, some of the newer programs are really patient-friendly. So there's a company called Xcures based out of California, and it was started by uh, a melanoma survivor, and it's investing um, his, his personal money into helping cancer survivors, cancer patients. Because he's alive because and, of the trial. Like he, and that mm -hmm. trial so they failed. It was a vaccine-related mm -hmm. immunotherapy for melanoma. It failed. It didn't. It didn't meet the criteria, but it worked in him. And that's an example of even even if the drug doesn't come out, it could still be effective in people. It's what percentage? That's that's the craziest story. It's amazing. And so this um, so this Xcures gave us a clinical trial for a patient uh, with a pill that actually blocks the BRAF called a NERC inhibitor. Mm -hmm. It's not FDA approved yet. It's on a compassionate use study. There's no placebo. The patient actually gets the drug. Uh, it's called Ulexertinib very flexible study where um, as a physician, I could adjust the dose and I could actually combine it with uh, uh, immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. And we have the first patient experience of this and it just, uh, uh, the patient's now disease-free. And, and so this patient was initially resistant to the combination immunotherapy, 
but with the new clinical trial, she is in a uh, full remission. She had a very, uh, almost a football size tumor under her armpit. And uh, with, with the combination of immunotherapy and the ERK inhibitor, she was say her tumor shrunk enough that the surgeons were able to remove it. And there are only 20 viable melanoma cells remaining. And this is the first uh, case report of using ERK inhibitor. Um, and we're so proud it came out of melanoma research last week. That is wild. That is really exciting. Um, you know, one thing I've always heard, right, before I was even an oncologist is, well, melanoma, like, you know, it's, it's obviously the, you know, lighter skinned people. So because like they have less like, you know, uh, melanin and, and, and maybe that's contributing. How, how accurate or relevant is that statement about like, you know, so, you know, tanner skin like you and I to darker skin. What is that percentage difference? Is it appreciable? And if you do manage, despite being Indian or African-American, if you get melanoma, is the behavior of it kind of just more obstinate, stubborn, and aggressive? So um, in, in terms of the behavior, it seems to be similar stage for stage and mutation by mutation. But in um, uh, darker complected individuals, because sometimes the awareness is less, mm. Uh, melanoma is not detected as early as in uh, uh, fair-skinned individuals in terms of physicians looking for it, especially looking for it in hard-to-find areas such as between the toes, uh, in skin folds, um, th things like that. So, um, and melanoma, uh, a high percentage of it is related to UV radiation exposure, and the more melanin our skin has, which is uh, with the darker complexion, the more natural protection we have from getting blistering sunburns. But anybody can get sunburns. And, and so blistering sunburn is really the DNA damage that many decades later leads to melanoma. Wow. So melanoma can occur in every racial ethnic uh, group. So we need to have high awareness. And, and then um, there is a subset of melanomas that are totally not related to UV radiation. So I think, I think you bring up a really good point that we need to have awareness of, you know, that all of us need to be checking our skin, seeing dermatology if we see changes. Um, and, uh, but definitely uh, the more lighter complected you are, the you know, um, blue-eyed, you have to be even more careful with um, sunburns. So just to make sure that I heard you correctly and that everyone heard you correctly, melanoma is still possible in places that have not been exposed to much UV at all. Yes. So that's yes. very important to know for everybody to know because they'll be like, mm -hmm. I swear, like I don't, you know, sunbathe with bottoms off and like, you know, it's in an area that's just like, they said like, this has never seen the sun. So mm -hmm. what percentage of melanoma, say in like people that are in their 20s or 30s, what percentage seem to be roughly not related to sun exposure, but just, you know, de novo just happened? I, I would say in the very young, um, maybe as much as 20, 30 percent may not be related to sun exposure. Wow. Those examples so, are important. So like, I have patients that are in college uh, that uh, have had melanomas develop, and, and uh, sometimes we have uncovered um, um, inherited um, genetic risks, uh, vulnerabilities for this. And as far as those inherited, you know, kind of predispositions like BRCA, right, is, is one of them, BRCA. What are some of the other ones that, that maybe are incriminated in that process? In, in uh, melanoma, there's a, a less commonly known gene called CDKN2A, 
uh, used to be called P16, and it sometimes runs in families. And in these families, when there's a inherited mutation, one of the two copies of CDKN2A, <laughs> Um, you get many moles and especially what are called dysplastic moles, dysplastic nevi. And so you can have um, hundreds of moles and often in those cases, dermatology takes uh, total body photographs so that they can match up moles and, and look for those. Um, that's not, not a very common situation uh, for the CDKN2A. I would say it's, it's less than 5% of the patients that I see. Um, but in those families, we, we have um, increased surveillance by dermatology. And what, um, um, what as far as like genealogy, like who, which populations, like, or I guess that's the wrong word, but which groups are like, is it Ashkenazi Jews, you know, like the Jewish community that carries yeah, so, that more? So we do see um, among uh, BRCA2 mutation, which is uh, related, as you know, to breast and ovarian cancer, we see increased risk of melanoma. Mm -hmm. And that, that there is a higher preponderance in Ashkenazi uh, Jewish, but also um, BRCA1 and 2 are seen across the population. Right. But as we go through life um, and these cells are in different parts of the body having different environmental stresses, so the skin cells are getting radiation from the, from the sun, um, our kidney cells are getting all the toxins flowing through the kidney, and then we get mutations in those cells and they're called somatic mutations. Now our body has its own self repair. It's able to um, tag the defective cell for the body to, to get rid of and, and new perfect stem cells take their place. But sometimes this process um, wears down. Aging is part of the wearing down because we have um, these telomerase genes also um, that are involved in self renewal and and one of the ways that all of us can decrease risk of cancer is to decrease inflammation because inflammation in general increases um, um, uh, the, the mutation load and, and our ability to, to repair these mutations. And so, and when you have less inflammation, our telomerase lasts longer uh, and, we, and we can have a longer, longer lifespan. So, so it's really amazing how cancer and health um, and aging, all of these are interconnected. Yeah, amazing to think it's actually pretty complicated and multifactorial, <laughs> right? It's not a, yes. well, when's the cure for cancer? That's an important point is when people ask the question, well, isn't cancer genetic? The answer is yes to that, but like, well, but how, what percentage of cancer is genetic? The answer is 100%. It's just a matter of, is it like inherited genetics or is it in your lifetime genetics, somatic? So I, I will say to anyone listening that's like an avid listener of this podcast, this was not scripted, but Dr. Nair just hit three of the podcasts that we've talked about. We had one on genetics and kind of, you know, delineating the risks inherited and not and about inflammation and then as well as um, uh, the telomeres and age and life and immune system. So I appreciate all of that. That's amazing. Now, everyone's familiar with the term, you know, or most everybody, immune therapy, immunotherapy. But I think one that really is way more medical than it is like in the public eye is a checkpoint inhibitor, like you said. So I think we've hopefully made it, you know, easier to appreciate what that means as far as like, uh, you know, the two different places that we're attacking it. But why is it called, if somebody had to say, why is it called a checkpoint inhibitor? What's the answer? Sure, Sanjay, I can explain. So the, the most important self uh, protecting our body, whether it's against COVID, viruses, 
um, or against cancer is our T cell. Right. Our T cell patrols, you know, our bloodstream, all the tissues. It's it, and the T cells tell all the other supporting cells uh, this is dangerous to the body. We need to attack it and get rid of it. Whether it's a virus, whether it's a cancer, and but our T cell being so powerful, it goes to to our heart, to our brain, to our um, uh, kidneys in our bloodstream, our T cells have the power when activated, if there's not a checkpoint to kind of say, you've done enough, calm down, they can literally kill us. And, and we see that we see that with um, the, the worst cases of COVID. Uh, we get a, exposed to a virus, our T cell sometimes gets so hyperactive that we get the pneumonia in the lungs, uh, the inflammation, our, our clotting system, goes into hyperdrive, we get um, brain swelling, all, all, the, all the inflammatory things that causes um, mortality in COVID. Um, and so, so, um, so the body has this uh, you know, kind of yin and yang where it can, um, in, in certain areas, it'll say the T cell needs to do its job and it brings in the natural killer cells and the macrophages to Get rid of the the offending you know virus or offending cancer, um, but but at critical parts of the body like the heart, the brain need a lot of protection. So so the body developed this system and it's called uh, um, just putting some um, localized checks. So it's not all over the body, but localized. In this area, we're gonna um, we're gonna have these these proteins on the surface. And basically, it's gonna it's gonna engage with the T cell, and the T cell has its own kind of turn off receptor, which are called checkpoint receptors. So the two most important receptors uh, were discovered by biologists. I think uh, they're Star Trek people. Uh, so the first one they call program death one. It actually isn't as scary as it sounds, but there's a protein on our cells, including our heart, our brain, to protect it from. T cell attack and this protein is called program death one protein and there's a receptor on the T cell called program death one receptor and the antibodies that were developed to this um, were called checkpoint inhibitors. So cancer cells because they come from the same 22,000 genes in our body but they they go devious they go outside of our control um, they they know about this whole pathway so they they figured out ways to just protect themselves by coating themselves with hundreds of times of PD-1 uh, protein. And and uh, the second one they call uh, CTLA-4, um, it's called a cytotoxic um, lymphocyte antigen um, receptor. So the um, so both of these, when both of these are really uh, super engaged, the, t, uh, the tumor cell can literally get into our bloodstream uh, and go to other parts of the body and the checkpoints aren't working. So it would be like uh, uh, somebody that's just, just kind of, you know, um, getting out and, and not listening to the body signals. Now the T cells are still there and, and the program death one was a misnomer. They should have called it program sleep one protein because uh, right around the tumor cell that's growing, there's still T cells there. They're just not doing their job because they're fooled into thinking this is part of the body, don't attack us. So when these antibodies uh, like uh, Keytruda, Optivo are given through the IV, they uh, go and uh, basically block, uh, you know, block these 
checkpoint checkpoint uh, uh, receptors on the T cells, and all of a sudden the T cells are free, and and then they go on the attack, and that's why we've seen melanoma tumors melt away within a week. So, Andy, that's a beautiful explanation, and 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 basically saying that. These checkpoint inhibitors are kind of like a, whoa, chill, chill, it's, you know, I'm good, I'm good, it's me, right? When you go to a foreign country, when you go to India, you see like all this, you know, protection with these like big guns and you're almost like scared going in, but it's like you're good, right? Like you're, you're supposed to be there. So that's why I like that Harry, you know, Potter cl uh, invisible cloak, right? They would just put that on and it's like, you know, I'm allowed through or even a better example, maybe, you know, a backstage thing at a concert. It's like everyone wants to go in, but like it's like if you have the band, then it's like, okay, you're, you're cleared through. But then, if somebody wants to be shady or be somewhere they're not supposed to be, they could just they, that group of them could just all put on the bands, right? And they could actually mm -hmm. take that artist for whatever reason, and they could, they'll get mm -hmm. straight through. And the way you expose them, if there was some way to like, you know, just remove or block that, then all of a sudden, you know, people could say people leave the premises. So that's that's one thing that's pretty, you know, sounds so simple, but really, you know, novel. And it's just like one step to think that our body's so smart, and we always, I always say, we grossly underappreciate our immune system. I mean, like, if we're praying about things every night to say, God, thank you for this, that, and the other, like, at some point, please, everyone, just say thank you for my immune system to just, like, keep erroneous, terrible things from happening. But mm -hmm. the the other part of that is, I remember I was in a, uh, uh, a dinner talk for a pathology group, which, now that I think about it, I don't know why I was in the pathology, you know, dinner talk, but I think it was because I was in fellowship, my wife was already practicing, and, and so I needed a meal. But the point is, it was in 2015, and you know the immune therapy is coming out. We're so excited, right? PDL1, PD1, immunotherapy. We're just pumped. And then I'm like, we've got to, we're going to figure this out. And then they put up a slide, and they said, and then here are all the other ones that are other basically stop signs that that whatever. I was like, and they're like, we have therapy for this one, PD1 and CTL1. And then I saw about nine more, and I was just like, whoa. So it's like they're, you know, because I was like, we we figured out cancer, we figured out the stop sign, and. Sure enough, you know, there's the ones that we know about, which are nine. I don't know what that number is now or however many was on the slide. but It's, it's over 20 now. Jeez, Louise. Yeah. Well, are yeah. you figuring them all out? How many got knocked down, Dr. Nair? Tell me you got yeah, yeah. knocked well, down. I think, I think on, the, on the flip side, um, we've been disappointed that um, many cancers we can't um, get into remission with the checkpoint inhibitors. So pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers where there's such a thick stroma around yeah. the cancer and the T cell just can't penetrate. So we call those tumors immunologically cold. Or desert, And right? so if, it's, if it's a hot tumor, a tumor where there's a lot of inflammation that the T cell can see, but um, some cancers, they're, they're so devious that they surround themselves with almost this wall, this imp impenetrable um, uh, stroma and the T cells and the macrophages, and, and then it makes the it makes a cold. And so now a lot, there's a lot of promising research into injecting these tumors with viruses, inje uh, giving uh, uh, radiation, a few doses of uh, what they call stereotactic hypofractionated radiation, which uh, pokes holes in there, sometimes even chemotherapy uh, with immunotherapy to poke holes in there. But different ways of getting um, uh, the, the, the tumor um, uh, to be penetrated by the T cells. And in pancreatic cancer, there's, um, uh, there's these uh, compounds in early research uh, called chemokines. Uh, they, they call them uh, CCR receptor 
Um, and um, uh, one of the medicines is called OX40. And when that OX40 has been combined with chemotherapy and with nivolumab, uh, they've actually seen in stage four pancreatic cancer encouraging one and two year survival. It's very early research uh, going on at uh, places like Penn and Sloan Kettering and um, uh, Stand Up to Cancer has been part of some of this, some of this research. And uh, but so even in the cancers where we're having difficulty using immunotherapy, we're figuring out ways and by we, I mean the greater cancer community here at Lehigh Valley Topper Cancer Institute, we're working with, uh, besides melanoma, um, a lot of trials in kidney cancer, a lot of trials in sarcoma. And in sarcoma, um, I've published with our group here using radiation as a way to bring T cells in and make an immunologically cold tumor hot. And we have, um, we published a paper in the oncologist um, showing that we could get tumors to shrink very rapidly by using uh, uh, five doses of radiation with immunotherapy. And um, um, so, so there's a, a lot going on. And now uh, the most exciting area right now is um, taking T cells from a patient and genetically engineering it. Um, and for hematologic cancers, uh, they call it CAR-T. Um, but it, even in solid tumors, there's a lot of re early research, um, still, still in the early phases, pioneering phases of uh, basically uh, using some of the COVID vaccine technology and genetic engineering to engineer the T cells to go fight the cancer and, and destroy it and, and potentially give a checkpoint inhibitor with this, uh, with, the, with the T cell. You just, again, another huge plug. So I had Rick, who's a PhD at UPenn, and he was talking about exactly all these things. So if this interests you, you have to go listen to that episode. It's already published. Like, it's exactly right. Pancreatic cancer just puts this silo up. Like, they recruit the cells that you make already, your stromal cells, your whole life. They take them. They hijack them. They kind of fortify themselves, and they actually, like, sometimes even make things to that where your normal cells... So guy, it's like the guy that has the hostage and you and you can't shoot the, the bad guy because it's like it's it's saying, hey, don't because you'll hurt me. They're literally putting out those signals to just make it what he called it, like an immune immune desert. So you have places that are immune rich and you have immune deserts. And then exactly what what you said, like the thought is if you don't know to go to help somebody in the sea unless you see flares coming out from the ship, what if there are no flares? Well, what if you could make the flares so that all of a sudden they're like, whoa, 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 we got to go over there. And that's what you meant by just causing a little bit of calamity or a little bit of, you know, chaos by doing that radiation right there and kind of opening the things up. Or if you inject it, then you kind of poof, like you burst it. And all of a sudden, all the things that recruit your immune cells to get there are now exposed. So that's, you know, that's another way that we're just, I hope anyone that listens to these kind of podcasts can say, that's why we haven't found a cure to cancer, which the book I'm writing says it's time to cancel a cure for cancer, the term a cure for cancer, and has a line through it because it's it, they're all different, as anyone can hear mm -hmm. and appreciate. Um, and then he was telling me, you know, CAR T therapy, I have uh, an episode on that, but then he was telling me how to even not take out the lymphocytes, but really you can even facilitate that engineering of those T cells in your body, which just blew my mm -hmm. mind. I thought, mm -hmm. I thought mm -hmm. CAR T, we just, we're just getting on this. And yeah, you got to take them out. It's a little laborious. And he's like, oh yeah, bro, we're already like looking into just engineering it in your body. That blew my mind. One thing we haven't talked about in any of the podcasts really, and I love that you said that word, and I know very little about it. You know, I, I pride myself on trying to keep a, a breath with most things, but, but sarcomas, like 
I don't see them that often. Obviously, it's very rare. So did I understand you correctly that sarcoma has some of the same uh, utilities that pancreatic cancer does as far as fortifying itself, being immune mm -hmm. deserts? Is that also why it is just such a stubborn cancer to treat? Yes. Yeah. So sarcoma is, um, um, is an, it's an area that I've developed a lot of interest over the last 20 years and have been doing research in. And it's about, it's about 15,000 cases a year in the United right. States. And there's at least 50 different types of sarcoma. So it's not all one cancer. Many of them have very distinct uh, tumor somatic mutations that make them different. So it's hard to come up with a unified approach to sarcomas. And in the old days, just like you said, Sanjay, we were trying to bomb them with the adriamycin and ifosfamide and different chemotherapies. And, and they were just like the melanoma when it was in advanced stage, they would work for a few months and then the sarcoma would grow back very fast. And, and sarcomas also have um, mutations that allow them to hide from the immune system. Okay. So just giving the immunotherapy drugs like um, nivolumab or pembrolizumab, so like Updivor, or Keytruda only gets responses in a rare sarcoma, maybe five, 10 percent of uh, advanced sarcomas. We get a little better uh, by using the combination like the ipilimumab and nivolumab, more, but more like 20 percent, but not the not the home runs that we see in melanoma, not the cures. And so um, the, the newer approach in sarcoma in research is to combine immunotherapy with a targeted therapy. I was gonna ask. So, yeah. so there's, so just like, um, and one of the things that I, many, many researchers, including myself have seen is that uh, blood supply, abnormal blood supply that's brought into the tumor due to mutations, um, which is called an angiogenesis, um, really fights the T cell. It, it kind of helps mask the T cell. So often, to, you know, the tumors that are the most immune resistant all, often tend to be also very angiogenic. Yeah, they tend to have a lot of blood supply. Like renal cell and, and, and some of the, mm -hmm. you know, bilia, uh, cholangios and, and all. And so in those cancers that are being resistant to immuno, some of them will respond to immunotherapy, especially if they have a lot of mutations. But sarcomas don't tend to be as mutated. You see more like um, five, six mutations rather than hundreds of mutations as you see in, in melanoma. So they don't stand after the T cell as much. They can hide more. So um, one, one of the medicines that uh, a great paper came out in um, AACR's journal, um, CCR, um, it was uh, a medicine called cabosantinib. And cabosantinib is a wonderful medicine that dries up the blood supply, so it blocks VEGF. It also blocks some of the growth um, mutations that are uh, driving sarcomas. And so, um, so we found that when you combine a medication like cabosantinib with immunotherapy, um, you can often get uh, better, better results. And uh, so a lot of this is in its very early, early stages of research. Um, we do use the traditional chemotherapies in the advanced stage, but um, we're actually finding that in some cases we can get uh, um, better results using targeted therapies and also immunotherapies. Uh, but we, we do need um, more and more breakthroughs. There's some early work in um, synovial sarcoma, which is another one of the rare 50 subtypes where um, a T cell therapy has been working. 
um, and uh, some vaccines and 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 uh, T cell therapies. Um, so, but but it is um, it is a difficult area. We work um, through our Memorial Sloan Kettering um, Alliance uh, with Dr. Sandra DeAngelis and others at uh, at Sloan on sarcomas, and and this is an area where we're hoping that the uh, CAR T's and the T cell uh, programs may may help even more. Um, so, but I, I think we're we're having more hope now than we we did say five years ago. So you know, it sounds like you're saying with immune therapy again, you're trying to unveil like uh, not unveil, but you're trying to enable like lymphocytes to be able to attack the tumor. Then you said angiogenesis is in some way also protective against T lymphocytes, correct? So when you were saying you know a TKI uh, or or uh, something to block that angiogenesis, which hopefully is in some effect another unmasking, then what you're hoping, and I think if, you know, I'm just so proud and humbled by the, you know, followers of these podcasts, because they're not medical and they just ask the questions even before I do. They're thinking, okay, you did one unveil with immune therapy, another unveil to some effect with angiogenesis, where's your bullet, right? And so that's what I think, what I would think is like, well, at that point, isn't there where you sprinkle now some cytotoxic chemo or better, what's called an ADC or antibody drug conjugate, which basically means that you're, you attach a chemotherapy to uh, an antibody and then you make that antibody a little bit of a, of a directed missile to launch onto something in the cancer and then then inject the chemo rather than putting it in your vein and just kind of shotgunning it, which is really the ideal way if we can find the antibody to you know have something carry it to. Um, so in those circumstances, is that something being investigated? Unveil, unveil, and actually like, you know, throw that kind of thing into the building? Yeah, I, I think I think people are, one of the difficulties in sarcoma is the rarity of sarcomas. And so you have, you have 50 different subtypes and then out of the 15,000 patients a year, it's difficult to do a lot of clinical trials. Um, and I think right. more and more we have to get to almost very personalized care. So we, we have an exceptional survivor here that we're in the process of publishing that has been fighting stage four uterine sarcoma spread to lung, peritoneum, pelvis, um, bone for the last five years. And finally, I have her in a durable, uh, complete remission. And we used the standard traditional chemotherapies for the first two years, but the last three years, we've actually been using things that are not, uh, that are, would be all, almost be considered off-label, but based on good science. It's a combination of immunotherapy, the stereotactic radiation to boost the immune system to unveil the uh, the resistant areas. And we found by testing the tumor mutations that her tumor actually had a BRCA mutation, um, even though she was not germline BRCA. Right. So her tumor acquired a BRCA mutation. And that gave us a, a chance to try something that's been successful in ovarian cancer. Uh, there are these pills called PARP inhibitors. So I was so about starting about three years ago, I started the patient on a PARP inhibitor um, uh, called Niraparib, uh, and also gave uh, pembrolizumab or Keytruda. And um, o over the course of the last three years, her uh, metastasis started slowing down, slowing down. And then we were down to what we call oligometastatic disease, just a couple of spots. And then I had Dr. Our, our radiation oncologist come in with uh, the stereotactic, uh, kind of the local, uh, you know, local smart bombs. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that also uh, had a great synergy with the 
with the immunotherapy because you, you release the dead tumor proteins and that, that allowed a, a greater immune surveillance. So she's actually, she may be one of the first cases of someone that's chemotherapy resistant after two years who is now in a full remission for the time, a totally normal PET scan. We just had a gala for our Cancer Institute this past weekend. She and her husband were on the dance floor dancing, uh, totally asymptomatic, uh, clear, clean PET scan. We're not sure how long uh, this will last. We're hoping for a long time. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. She's still on the on the PARP inhibitor. Uh, we stopped the immunotherapy after three years, um, and we, we could always restart it if we, we're gonna monitor her very closely. We're, uh, one of my fellows is in the process of publishing this paper because it's still an NF1, and it, it goes to your book, Sanjay. You know, nobody can claim they have a cure for stage four uterine sarcoma, but here's a personalized treatment that's worked for this individual because we knew her germline genetics, we knew her tumor genetics, we were outsmarting the cancer using um, things out of the mainstream, you know, for uterine sarcoma, you know, in NCCN, um, immunotherapy is not an NCCN for uterine sarcoma, uh, PARP inhibitors aren't an NCCN for uterine sarcoma, but, but this is not, um, this is very rational scientific approach and it's one of the, you know, for someone like me that's been uh, in cancer research for 32 years, that's come up through the NCI trials-based approach, you know, working with the Mayo Clinic and, and having been, um, you know, the initial chair of the NCI early phase central IRB, all of our studies were groups of patients, you know, 600 at that, you know, the more the better back in the old days, you know, 5,000 patients. but. The problem with that type of research is that we're putting all these patients that are different germline genetics, different tumor genetics, and we're comparing between trials, you know, 5% difference here and there. But it's like, you know, you have, you know, a, a lot of differences. But I think now we're finally developing a way to start looking at NF1, and it won't be from these large randomized or even phase two trials with 20 patients, it'll be with artificial intelligence, exactly. with harnessing all the knowledge that we have. And, and, and the negative knowledge is important too. We tried things yeah. and they don't work. It's important to catalog that and feed them into the research computer so that right. somewhere else in the world, they don't have to repeat, you know, so we're all interdependent and we can just, just like they, um, figured out the, uh, the, the gene code and for humans, um, you know, we can, we can, um, try to on a, all of us through computer computers, through data sharing, through worldwide research, yes. cooperation, collaboration and, and AI. And it's, it's actually people like you that are thinking out of the box, um, you know, both as a, as an oncologist, but also looking at technology looking at new, you know, and I think our, our audience is is sometimes ahead of, uh, you know, a lot of organized research and they're thinking. They are. They're it's not incredible. limited it's by amazing. barriers, or not barriers, but oncology has been a very, you know, um, the progress has been, you know, slowed down sometimes by the way we do studies. Big time. And, Big time. Uh, but I, I think now more and more um, oncologists like myself and, and, and yourself 
we're more free to innovate. We're not doing crazy things. These are it's not Mad Hatter, um, yeah. It approved FDA approved medications. We're using it based on rational science, um, and we're we're watching them safely. And uh, but it's 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 very exciting because um, you know when I saw this patient, uh, my wife and I were we had a um, a benefit gala to raise funds for um, uh, needy patients and for counseling and to see uh, some of the patients that were miracle patients dancing there, dancing the night away in Allentown on a Saturday night. It was, it was very that's exciting. That's incredible. Well, first of all, I can't wait to be invited to that gala next year. I'm just kidding. But that sounds oh. magical. <laughs> it gave me goosebumps, actually. It's a beautiful We gala. would love to have you. I would be ecstatic. My wife and I, I mean, <laughs> we live for that. We're both oncologists, so we just, it's just, it literally is just the most fulfilling thing um, that keeps us extremely humble and, and proud of these, especially these kind of really heroes to us, right? And to your point, that's what AI, that's what the other part of X-Cures and other companies like that is say, guys, ladies, we need to like aggregate all of our information. We need to see why it didn't work, what, you know, or why it did work and what are the other pieces we think don't mean anything, but it's like, why are all these people with XY701 not responding to this? What is this thing? That the only way you know that is to have it all pooled together and let AI say, these are the, these are the trends, these are the relationships we, you know, made. Otherwise, it's, it's very mis, you know, mystique, right? It's very hard to demystify. This has been such an amazing pleasure, Dr. Nair, to have you. You are just so inf insightful, intelligent, but also very articulate. I think everyone that's gonna listen to this is like, dude, I get it. Like if they, if anyone had a doubt on why cancer is difficult or that big farmers holding the cure or doctors are holding the cure, whatever the thing is, there's no way you could listen to all this and not appreciate really the complexity. And and I and I mean this sincerely. I think it's it it's it's almost irreverent to what you know you and others like you in this field are doing for us and our future. So I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it. Your passion is very you know palpable, and um, and I'm just I'm just thrilled and humbled to have had spoken with you. And Sanjay, and thank thank you for getting the word out, and thank you to your audience for being engaged and interested because I think many of the uh, you know, members in your podcast audience may, may be part of helping us, you know, through AI, through technology, through uh, Even word you know, of mouth. some of them may, may be interested in going into a career in cancer research. There's so many, um, I would say the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be explosive amount of growth and explosive amount of opportunity so if you know if anybody you know that is listening is interested in, in this career uh having people like sanjay that can uh, make all of this understandable and and remove some of the technical jargon and and uh and because it really is it's going to be all of us together that are gonna that are gonna help this thank you so much everyone i hope knows where to find you um and it's just been very humbling. Let me know however I can be of assistance to all your great endeavors. Yeah, we'll keep in touch. Yes, Th thank you, you so much. I would love that.